Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. I've got a bit behind of late with the episodes and that's partly because I've been travelling so much. I was in the UK in February, in China in March, back in the UK in April, then Argentina in May and now I'm in Costa Rica. And it's not always been easy to find quiet times and places to do the recordings. Anyway, I've been continuing to write poetry, and I'll share those at the end of this episode. In the meantime, here's the next instalment of The Gourmet Gospel, starting with Section 7. Enjoy! Section 7. The Fruits of Freedom Now, having laid a psychological foundation on which to build our freedom in Christ, let us examine some of the practical ways in which that may manifest. Freedom in Unforgiveness Quotes Forgiveness is not letting the offender off the hook, but a step in the victim's recovery. John Van Dyke Wilmerding I've spoken to lay people who say they skip that line in the Lord's Prayer where it says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, because they've lost a loved one and they just can't do it. We need to show understanding for those people. Dr. Gladys Ganiel, Beyond Belief, BBC Radio 4 And God knows, bringing justice is always an act of love. Kate Braestrup, author, quoted on Moth Radio Hour podcast, April 10th, 2018. Now, don't get me wrong with this headline. Forgiveness is a freeing and healing thing, but it is everywhere presented as a glib formula without the slightest regard for justice, often adding to the would-be forgiver's suffering. Forgive and forget is the deceptively simple phrase worldlings and churchlings dish out alike. But let us consider Jesus' teaching on the subject. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. To summarise, a man owed a large debt, 
begged his creditor to be patient and was forgiven. But when he became a creditor himself, he did not show the same mercy to his debtor, instead having him imprisoned, and he was therefore turned over to be tortured. Here are some key points often overlooked in this story. 1. In both cases, the debtor acknowledged his indebtedness, and 2. The debtor was truly unable to pay. This lesson in forgiveness, therefore, does not apply to someone who has treated us cruelly or unjustly but never acknowledged it, even when given the opportunity to do so. Yet the forgive and forget formula takes none of this into account, even becoming a monstrosity, as in the case of a young Uruguayan woman who had been tortured and was later told by a priest, You should love the people who tortured you. They did it to save your immortal soul. If you died under torture, you should go directly to heaven. They were good Catholics and only wanted to save you from the devil and from Marxism. It's a vicious theology, isn't it? And it came from a member of the Opus Dei Catholic sect who supported such thuggish dictators as Franco and Pinochet. Yet it is the logical result of the indiscriminate forgiveness advocated in Christian circles. And in Northern Ireland to this day, church leaders are reminded to refrain from formulaic prescriptions of forgiveness following the decades of troubles that preceded the 1998 Good Friday Peace Agreement. When Alan McBride, who lost his young wife to an IRA bomb in 1993, was asked if he had a message for the churches, he replied, They need to do more in order to help this community to heal, and they don't do that by standing behind words like forgiveness. There's a huge burden on victims just to deal with what happened to them, and the churches sometimes heap a further burden on them to forgive. Have a wee bit of understanding, a wee bit of feeling for people who have been through horrendous things. Therefore, let us embrace Joseph's example of forgiveness in the Old Testament. His brothers threatened his life and sold him into slavery at the age of 17. More than 20 years later, when he is Pharaoh's right-hand man in Egypt, those brothers appear before him on the verge of destitution. He recognizes them, but they do not know who he is. So what example does Joseph give us here? Does he immediately declare himself to them, embrace them and throw open the granaries of Egypt to his former tormentors? No, he continues to conceal his identity while putting them through a series of tests to see if their hearts have changed. The first evidence of this is when he overhears them saying, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. This moves Joseph to tears, though he weeps them in secret. Forgiveness has begun, but it is not yet complete. More tests follow, as Joseph sends his brothers back to Canaan to fetch the youngest, Benjamin, while keeping another, Simeon, hostage. When they return, and Joseph sees Benjamin, his only full brother among the group, the rest being half-brothers, he again weeps in secret. Final proof of his brother's repentance, however, comes after Joseph has Benjamin framed for the theft of a silver cup as the group set out for Canaan a second time. The penalty for Benjamin is to become an Egyptian slave. At this point, the ten other brothers could simply have abandoned the youngest to bondage in Egypt, as they had done with Joseph all those years ago, but instead go back to face the music together. Finally, 
When Judah offers to pay the penalty of slavery himself by taking Benjamin's place, Joseph is overcome and can no longer conceal his identity. He sees the repentance of his brothers, their readiness to take upon themselves the suffering they had once inflicted, and declares himself to them. Now bursts his mighty heart. Forgiveness is complete. In this example, forgiveness goes hand in hand with the repentance of the offender. The wronged and the wronger cooperate. The crime is not overlooked, whitewashed or generalized, not diminished, downplayed or diluted. Joseph says to his brothers, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Joseph's story also demonstrates that forgiveness is not just a religious concept, but a human capacity built into our nature, and once bestowed inwardly, can find its outer expression. Had Joseph been too hasty in his forgiveness, he would not only have robbed his own heart of its time and process, but denied his brothers the gift of repentance. Yet most Christians put the cart of outward forgiveness before the horse of inward forgiveness, and how many would dare do so unchristian a thing as frame his own brother for a theft? What emerges from Joseph's story is a skillfully choreographed dance of forgiveness, a poetic drama written by the Holy Spirit in human hearts. So too in Shakespeare's The Tempest. At the start of the play, Prospero relates to his daughter Miranda that he had been Duke of Milan until his own brother Antonio usurped the kingdom, betrayed it to the King of Naples, and set the two of them adrift in a condemned vessel to die. But they survived, and Prospero, using his magical powers, assisted by the spirit Ariel, imprisons his would-be murderers and confronts them with their crimes. Only when he is satisfied they are full of sorrow and dismay, does he conclude, the rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance. They being penitent, go release them, Ariel. In both cases, the two maltreated men bring their tormentors within their own power and discover the repentant condition of their hearts before forgiveness is bestowed. Freedom in Sex Quotes then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Genesis 3, 7 The Garden of Eden, which you place in the past, is really yet to come. We shall enter it when we no longer despise our bodies. E.M. Forster, A Room with a View I hate such humbug as could attempt to plaster over with ecclesiastical abstractions such ecstatic, natural, human love. Thomas Hardy, Jude the Obscure Sexual shame is mankind's oldest affliction. Having eaten that mournful mouthful from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the first thing Adam and Eve do is cover their nakedness. They feel ashamed of their bodies and sexuality. They hide even from their life-giving benefactor because they are afraid. So, almost from the beginning, shame, secrecy and fear have colluded to defame sex. And sexual shame has afflicted humanity with its law-laden tyranny ever since. 
It accounts for psychologist Albert Ellis's observation in Sex Without Guilt in the 21st Century that men and women of goodwill with liberal attitudes on a host of politico-economic issues became embarrassed and angrily red-faced when confronted by reasonably liberal sex views. Most Americans, he asserts, are sex fascists who marinate sexual discovery with guilt. And this guilt-ridden mindset is larded with hypocrisy. For example, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich admitted in March 2007 that he'd had an extramarital affair at the very time he was leading efforts to impeach former President Bill Clinton over his fling with Monica Lewinsky. Legislating the libido. Quotes. We hear that we are living in a sex-ridden society, but in reality we live in a world corrupted with envy. Quentin Crisp. It's high time we challenge the Puritan Calvinistic delusion that the worst aspects of sinfulness can be traced to the fleshy theme parks of the human genitals. Phil Rockstro, countercurrents.org, November the 16th, 2006. And then, you know what I'd do? I'd take one of them girls out in the grass and I'd lay with her. Now they say laying up with a girl comes from the devil. But the more grace a girl got in her, the quicker she wants to go out in the grass. John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath, spoken by Reverend Jim Casey. As we have frequently observed, the law makes sin increase. And nowhere is this truer than sex. To deny or forbid natural urges is to drive behaviour into extremes of abstinence or extremes of indulgence. It perverts and distorts desire into unhealthy directions. As soul teacher Darren Eden puts it, when our ancestors ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we ate of the tree of polarity. Law polarises life, and its sexual code mercilessly and implacably divides the souls of humanity. As the French writer Saint observed of her relationship with Chopin, who initially abstained from sexual relations with her, this way of separating spirit and flesh has simply resulted in the establishment of monasteries and bordellos. The Church, of course, has been a leading proponent of sexual legalism, and the Catholic persuasion especially destructive in this regard. Are not its paedophilia scandals, for instance, the inevitable and predictable result of imposing celibacy on the priesthood? Sex is a divine gift. God created our bodies, he designed our sex organs, and he bestowed on us the gift of orgasm, our earthly taste of heaven's pleasure. But the church would shame its flock into denying themselves the pleasure God meant them to have. Further, it spawns the falsehood that somehow the body is bad, along with its sexual appetites, when, to the contrary, they are good. People in our culture are, sexually speaking, in a pretty kettle of paradoxes, Ellis writes. Self-acceptance, on the other hand, is much more likely to be achieved when people truly acknowledge all their thoughts, emotions and physical urges and refrain from condemning themselves for any of them. When sexual impulses are not allowed healthy outlets, he continues, they will frequently take abnormal forms of outlet, including neurotic symptoms. 
Christian shame begins at the origins of attraction, even before it can be expressed. Men are condemned for desiring beauty in women, even though Scripture praises that quality in the patriarch's wives, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, while with poetic fervor, the Song of Solomon blows its caresses over every curve and tuft of womanhood. Legalists would also limit Christians to Christian partners, as if we were incapable of discerning for ourselves where the fires of divinity burn. An even more spurious invention claims that demons are exchanged during sex as readily as body fluids. Where does that come from? What possible justification does the Bible give for such a ludicrous conclusion? Demons are real things, of course, disruptive, destructive, and, well, demonic. But to ascribe to these spiritual flies unfettered access to the spirit-filled temple of God is to suggest darkness can mix with light or shadow dispel illumination. Masturbation can be fun. Quotes God wouldn't give you a toy and tell you not to play with it. Sister Wendy I was feeling guilty about masturbating still, so I went to see a Methodist minister and he was like, don't worry about it. I masturbate, my wife masturbates, it's not against the Bible at all. Drew Carey, WTF Podcast, May 2018 I recall a vivid dream from my early thirties, in which I saw fascinating sea creatures in a swimming pool, but then I threw a great quantity of dead fish into the pool, much more than the creatures could eat, so that the entire water surface was covered and I could no longer see them. I awoke with a sense of disappointment. This dream came shortly after a very painful breakup and conveyed to me with kindness and gentleness that I had been using frequent masturbation as a sedative to numb and obscure emotional pain rather than face it. Thus I was led by the spirit of love to adjust my response to the shock and sadness. What a world of difference from the approach of law, which knows only heartless prohibitions and denouncements. Victorian-era physical restraints even attempted to curb a boy's wet dreams, Masturbation is not only okay, it can be very healthy. Albert Ellis describes it as an undangerous, beneficial human act that has warded off an enormous amount of anxiety, depression, rage and low frustration tolerance that many sexually deprived people would have felt if they had not resorted to it. He rails at restrictions against masturbation as blind and destructive and Mantak Chia, author of The Multi-Orgasmic Male, advocates solo pleasuring, or milking the penis, as a discipline for health, by which men can open up and detoxify the body while enhancing their sex lives. So let masturbation be to your benefit. You have permission, not that you need it. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Holy Homosexuality Nowhere is the Christian mindset more entrenched in the old, discarded covenant than in its views on homosexuality. The bigoted brotherhood glibly quote Leviticus 18.22, which says the act is detestable, and leave it at that. 
But that raises some tricky questions about other provisions of Old Testament law, as pointed out by one J. Kent Ashcraft in an open letter to radio personality Dr. Laura Schlesinger in May 2000. I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? I have a neighbour who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? Faith and homosexuality are only incompatible in the binary and polarised mindset of law. In 2018, at a poetry evening at Brighton's Rialto Theatre, I encountered their powerful confluence in the person of Imogen Cook, a young gay woman, and her poem, Salt and Light. Therein, she expresses in exquisite verse the turmoil of trying to reconcile rigid expectations of her faith community with being gay before the first time any human called my name. In introduction to the poem, she writes, If you grow up gay and Christian, the popular narratives regarding that intersection focus either on denying, repressing your sinful sexuality in accordance with Christ's wishes, or freeing yourself from the shackles of religion and leading a happy, secular, gay life. I knew from the beginning that neither of these narratives would ever apply to my story, but it was oddly horrifying to witness their pervasiveness anyway. People like me were not supposed to exist openly and happily. As we have observed, love transcends law. See the two commandments above. So love between people of the same gender transcends the law that would divide them. Thus, Cook reaches out to that God who is love, for no loving God creates someone already ripe for condemnation. I encourage readers to encounter online the full testimony of her poem. Protecting the Prostitute The sin-inflating effects of law are also evident in the sex industry. In her TED Talk of 2016 and subsequent interview, sex worker Juno Mack explained, Prohibiting the sex industry actually exacerbates every harm that sex workers are vulnerable to. The law forces you to keep selling sex, which is the exact opposite of its intended effect. Also, by denying prostitutes recourse to justice, criminalization is a gift to rapists. It helps the people who wish to exploit us. Meanwhile, partial criminalization forces prostitutes into dangerous situations, and even when the sex industry is legalized and regulated, shame-centered politicians make the process so difficult and expensive that a two-tiered system of legal and illegal work arises. Summing up all this, Mac calls for full decriminalization and labor rights as workers. What's important is that we have the right to work safely and on our own terms. Freedom in Idleness Quotes We must strive to become serial loafers. It may be the last best hope for us all. Phil Rockstro, dissidentvoice.org, June 16, 2005 In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength.
Isaiah 30:15. O sleep, O gentle sleep, nature's soft nurse. Shakespeare, Henry IV, Part Two. The Italians have a wonderful phrase, "dolce far niente," meaning sweet doing nothing or pleasant idleness. This from a region of the world that still cherishes the healthy practice of taking an afternoon nap or siesta after lunch, but in nations such as the United States, where people pride themselves on working long hours or two or more jobs, it represents an assault to the groundless work ethic. Who made work a moral issue? As author Tom Hodgkinson complains. It is a sad fact that from early childhood we are tyrannized by the moral myth that it is right, proper, and good to leap out of bed the moment we wake in order to set about some useful work as quickly and cheerfully as possible. I would argue the situation is even worse, in that most people not only wake merely to work, but must enforce that waking through the tyrannical means of an alarm clock. For all modern society's promises of leisure, liberty, and doing what you want, says Hodgkinson, most of us are still slaves to a schedule we did not choose. Even the brief breaks afforded by public holidays are marred for many people by the compulsion to visit in-laws and relatives with whom they have very little in common or even dislike. Preceded, of course, by the stress, hassle, guilt, and expense of buying presents during bustling holiday seasons. Idleness as a waste of time is a damaging notion put about by its spiritually vacant enemies. Hodgkinson adds, he partly blames the Bible for anti-idol propaganda and Christianity's promotion of bed guilt, which rests on the notion that God hates it when you get up late. He quotes from Proverbs, "Go to the ant, you sluggard; consider its ways and be wise." It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer, and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? But overall, the Bible is much more an advocate of loafing than labouring, and promises that we shall enter God's rest. The curse put on Adam in his last moments in Eden was of. Painful toil by the sweat of your brow, but Jesus has delivered us from this and every other curse by becoming a curse for us. He also embodied rest by taking a nap during a terrifying storm and commending Mary for taking it easy over the frenetic labors of her sister Martha. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, "Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me." Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, "You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better." And it will not be taken away from her. Leisure time is a great threat to a system that enslaves the human race. Time for introspection, as Hodgkinson points out, 
would lead to that terrible thing, a vision of the truth, a clear image of the horror of our fractured, dissonant world. So a gilded aphorism has been invented that idle hands are the devil's tools to enforce a phantom morality and shore up our oppressive mechanisms of work structures, brain-numbing entertainments and officially sanctioned thought. Hodgkinson gives many more golden insights into the virtues of an indolent life. A correlation between greatness and late rising, for instance, the virtues of lazy sex and the inspirations afforded by dreaming. Quentin Crisp was also a great advocate of idleness. Subject of the film The Naked Civil Servant and of Sting's popular song An Englishman in New York, he was an exemplar of living life on one's own terms. In 1999, in New York City, I attended one of Crisp's last solo performances of An Evening with Quentin Crisp. Then 90 years old, seated on stage, dignified and regal, wearing a stylish suit of purple velvet and a matching hat that framed a nest of thick grey hair, his bright eyes gleaming, this icon of free thought discoursed without notes for two hours on many aspects of life and personality development. But what stayed with me most among his sparkling offerings and anecdotes was his answer to the question, how do you look so young? It's quite simple, really, he answered. Don't work. As the laughter subsided, he added, When you've been getting up at 7.30 in the morning to leave your house at 8.30 to get to work at 9.30, after a lifetime of that, the look of resentment is etched on your face. The author Kurt Vonnegut was another advocate of time-wasting. In a 2005 interview, he recounts a moment with his wife when he is about to leave the house to buy an envelope. Oh, she says, well, you're not a poor man, you know. Why don't you go online and buy a hundred envelopes and put them in the closet? And so I pretend not to hear her and go out to get an envelope because I'm going to have a hell of a good time in the process of buying one envelope. I meet a lot of people and see some great-looking babes, and a fire engine goes by and I give them the thumbs up and ask a woman what kind of dog that is, and, and I don't know. The moral of the story is, is we're here on Earth to fart around. You've been listening to my audiobook recording of The Gourmet Gospel. You can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprofits.com, where profit spelt P-R-O-P-H-E-T Encantado On hearing the sexteto astigero at Pista Urbana, Buenos Aires A jaw-dropping cadenza on the cello A rock recalling Jacqueline Dupre, her namesake to forget mortality, summoning souls in awe to hear, to pray, while on the violin, sometimes on top and sometimes underneath, dual interplay of dual divine, Alexei Musatov weaves in and out in virtuous display, and even seems to mimic human speech in bowing below the bridge, while at his side 
Meucci's contrabajo underscores with urgent pulse Tango's relentless ride. Bandonianistas, Manjevic and Carlo, breathing the breath of life throughout, impart the universe of sound, and guiding all, Peralta is the sextet's beating heart. Exemplars all, and I bewitched again by Buenos Aires maestros unsurpassed, musical priests and messengers to earth, beyond the reach of future, present, past. Parchment, on the trial of Arizona aid worker Scott Warren. For giving water to the thirsty, food to hungry travelers in scorching deserts, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, such acts as qualify for heaven's rest, Scott Warren faces 20 years in jail, his crime to harbor desperate immigrants, while US border agents empty out the water bottles left for their survival, and bones of children bleach beneath the sun, litter the growler valley of the shadow of death, in witness to this murderous mission. They know not, serving Trump's agenda well, how parched their throats will be in fires of hell. Windbags on government's rebranding of methane as freedom gas. From freedom fries to freedom gas, new phrases enrich our air, waves of fresh fumes expelled by officials, including this conjuring pair. Menezes and Winberg, who export the idea, America's gift to the earth, is molecules of US freedom, rebranding for all they're worth. Though it's even more toxic than carbon dioxide, officials give a free pass. One atom of carbon and four of hydrogen, it's a lesson in passing gas. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy.